Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Christian. If you're one of the, if you're new here at Cornerstone, I'm one of the pastors. I get the opportunity to share God's word with us this morning. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of 2 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 7 this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open there. If you don't have a Bible, just throw your hands up in the air and uh, one of our ushers would love to give one to you. I actually have an extra one up here with me. If anybody needs one, I'll toss it to you. Here you go, Dave. I'll give you that one. But as this is the first Sunday of 2019, let me also say to you, everyone, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. How many times have you heard that this week? How many times have you said that this week? There's always that like weird thing right about now of, is it too late into the new year to still say Happy New Year? But since we, last time we were together, it was the 30th of December, I feel like I can say it. And I think that we mean it when we say it, don't we? Like we truly want this year to be a happy year, both for us and for others. Particularly if last year wasn't so happy. So you might be thinking to yourself, on this first Sunday of the Happy New Year, why are you preaching a sermon entitled Godly Grief? What does that have to do with having a Happy New Year? What does grief and happiness have to do with each other? And I think that you'll see this morning that they have a lot more to do with each other than we might think. I'm just going to get to the heart of the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. It comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. Read this with me, if you will. For even if I made you grieve by, with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, I have joy, I have gladness now, not because you were grieved but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Get this. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. We'll talk more in a few minutes about this letter that Paul says he sent that caused grief to the Corinthians. But do you see what he's getting at here? He's rejoicing now because even though his letter caused them grief, caused them sorrow and pain, it was what he calls a godly grief. A grief that produced repentance, that caused them to turn from the sin that they were in. We'll get into that for a second, in a second. To turn from that sin to God. It led to true change. Not just superficial change, but change in their actions, in their desires, in their thoughts. And he says that that grief that led to repentance leads to salvation, and it's something that they won't regret. These two ideas that you see there in verse 10 of godly grief and repentance, I think, are so important for us to focus on that we're going to spend two weeks on this passage. Next week, we're really going to hone in on this idea of repentance, what it looks like to live a life of repentance, not just a a one-time thing when you come to Jesus in in the first place, but the regular ongoing pattern of our life in Christ, in following Jesus. But today, we're going to focus for the next 30 minutes or so on this idea of grief. And especially the contrast that Paul creates there in verse 10 between godly grief, which leads to repentance, and worldly grief, which he says just leads to death. And again, at first glance, why are we focusing on grief the first Sunday of the Happy New Year. But think about it this way. 
If godly grief is the key to true repentance, to true change in our lives, well, isn't that kind of what's already on our minds at this time of year anyways? I mean, think about it. Everybody makes new, or many people make New Year's resolutions. We say, okay, it's a new year. What do I want to do differently? What do I want to be different about my life, my character, my habits than there was last year? We make commitments of what we're going to start doing in the new year. What we're going to recommit to doing, and as a matter of fact, some of you may be in here this morning because of a recommitment to be a part of our church more regularly in this year. And in that case, I don't want to embarrass you at all. I'm so glad you're here for that. But let's, let's do more than just increase attendance. Some of us, our resolutions have to do with things we want to commit to stop doing. And right now, the advertisers know right where to get us, right? New year, new you. Why are all the stores having sales on exercise stuff right now. Because they know if they wait till February, we won't be thinking about it anymore, right? As if turning the page of the calendar was all that was necessary to change our lives. And so often, our New Year's resolutions fail because if we're honest, we just, we just went after superficial change in the first place anyways, right? To change some habits, to change the way we eat, to change what time we get up or what time we go to bed. We try to change habits when what we really need are changed hearts. And we must go deeper for that, to the level of our thoughts and intentions and desires. And as Paul says in this passage, when you do that, when you try to get to the level, when you truly try to get down to the nitty-gritty of what's going on in your heart, it's messy and it's painful and it takes time it causes grief and as Paul says here if it's worldly grief if it's basically just grief over the consequences of our mistakes consequences of our sin if it's really just a frustration and pain because we come because we're not getting our way if it's really just a disappointment that our dreams didn't work out or we missed out an opportunity or a relationship fell apart because of our sin if it's really just a self-pity, a wallowing in guilt, all of those things, Paul says, ultimately will fail to lead to the actual kind of heart change that we need. But on the other hand, he says, if it's godly grief, if, if it's what I would call a Godward, God-oriented sadness with sin, that's not just focused on the effects, the consequences of our sin, but sees our sin for what it is as an affront and an offense to the righteous character of our God, as a distrust and a disloyalty to him. As like Spencer talked about last week, as failure in our mission to make Jesus known. If the grief that we feel over sin has God as its primary focus, well, this is the godly grief that actually leads to true change. It's a grief that ultimately leads to gladness in the end. And so if what you truly want in 2019 is to experience true happiness, to seek true change in your life, then we've got to grapple with this idea of godly grief. Because as Paul says, it's the key to all of that. Are you ready to do that? Okay, what I want to do first is we're going to take a look at this chapter as a whole. We're going to spend a few minutes talking about what this whole grief thing looked like in the situation going on between Paul and the Corinthians. So if you will, would you stand with me? We're going to read verses 2 through 16 
of Second Corinthians chapter seven. Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse two. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said to you before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. But whatever boasts are for whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you has proved true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. All right, you can go ahead and have a seat. Let's spend a few minutes unpacking what it is that Paul's doing. There was some situation going on between Paul and the Corinthians. And if you've been here for our series through 2 Corinthians up to this point, well, what we have here in chapter 7 is basically the conclusion to the first main section of this book. Everything that Paul says in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 6 all comes to a head here. And if you remember, Paul is writing this whole letter because there has been this friction, this breakdown in his relationship with the people in Corinth. We learned that there were false teachers that had come into Corinth that were undermining Paul's authority in the church by questioning his legitimacy as an apostle. Because he suffered a lot. Because he wasn't wealthy. And it seems because he wasn't a particularly impressive speaker. 
In contrast to this weak-looking ministry of Paul, they came in and they were espousing a version of Christianity without suffering. A version of following Jesus that emphasized comfort and stability, wealth and status. It was an easy Christianity that, that, that already fit the Corinthians' vision of the good life. And so they, they gobbled it right up because it didn't require much change for them. And as Todd has reminded us throughout this series, that sounds a lot like the American church, doesn't it? Comfort, stability, wealth, status. As Todd has said, we are them and they are us. That the same temptation to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to make it fit our vision of the good life is just as deadly for us as it was for them. And the consequences of it are huge. And that's what we see throughout this letter. Paul goes hard after these false teachers because while the gospel that they preached might have fit the Corinthians' vision of the good life, it didn't fit Jesus. Jesus was the suffering servant, the one who brought us salvation through suffering and death and resurrection, the one who called those who would come after him to take up our crosses and follow him, even in the midst of suffering and hardship ourselves. And so what we see in this letter is that Paul is not afraid to hold himself up as an example and to basically say, okay, here's me, suffering, weak, destitute, but the power of God is at work in me. And here's these super apostles who all they have to boast on is their own wealth and their own skill as speakers and these somehow letters of recognition that show who they are. Which one of us looks more like Jesus? Follow that one. Paul is going so hard after these false teachers because if the Corinthians keep following them, they will no longer be following Jesus. This was a matter of life and death. And so he comes hard. But the, the thing that we find, especially in this passage, is that Paul's harshest rebuke, his strongest rebuke, doesn't happen in the book of 2 Corinthians, but in this letter that it says he wrote previously. This tearful letter, this harsh letter. And the thing is, we don't, we don't have that letter. We don't have copies of it. We don't know what it said but it must have been pretty harsh because as it says in verse eight, Paul almost regretted setting it. At first I regretted it because it was gonna grieve you. And I wasn't just trying to grieve you because that would have done no good. So what he does is between writing that first letter and then sending this one of 2 Corinthians, he sends Titus to them personally, to come and see what their response to his harsh letter was going to be, to see if they repented and turned away from the false teachers or not. We find this out back in chapter 2 when he says, I came to Troas to preach the gospel, even though a door was open for me, the Lord, but my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find Titus there. I sent Titus to you. I was waiting for him in Troas. He didn't come, and I couldn't wait anymore. That's how much angst and anguish I felt over this situation. So I left, and I went to Macedonia. And basically everything from 2.13 up until chapter 7, verse 5, is kind of this long aside, if you will, this big theological understanding in between him telling, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why'd you send the harsh letter? Why'd you send Titus? And so after all of that, he comes back here in chapter 7. He goes, okay, I took leave to get to Macedonia. But then when I got to Macedonia, gosh, I still couldn't find Titus. 
And there was affliction on every turn. There was no picnic when he got there. But he says this in verse 6. He says, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by, by the coming of Titus. And when Titus finally came, when Paul finally got to see him, he brought such comforting words that his harsh letter had had the exact effect that Paul had hoped it would have. That at least many within the church in Corinth had repented and turned from the false teachers. He says, he, he told us of your longing and your mourning and your zeal for me. That they welcomed Titus with fear and trembling, he said. That they expressed their sorrow for going along with these impressive false teachers. And they expressed their desire to reconcile with Paul. And so basically what we have in the book of 2 Corinthians is Paul's long letter reconciling with them, saying, good, you had the right response. You saw that to follow the false teachers was to walk away from Jesus, and you want Jesus more than you want comfort. Good. That's what I was hoping for. And what we see in this letter is that Paul basically has three groups in mind the whole way through. At different times in the letter, he refers to different of these groups. On the one hand, as we see here, he's referring to the people who had returned to follow Jesus in him. Then later on, he's going to refer to those who are still following the false teachers. And then later on, he's going to just throw the gauntlet down and say, you guys that are still on the fence who can't pick a side, I'm coming. And I will deal harshly with you if I need to. He'll get to those other two groups later in the letter. But right now, he's speaking to that first group to the group of people who were grieved by his letter and who repented. And he, one of the things he wants to do here is he wants to make sure that they understand why he was so harsh with them. Again, look back at verse 8. He says, I'm, I meant to cause you grief. I sent you this letter and it was meant to make you sad. And I almost regretted it because if all you had felt was sad, it would have done no good. But now I don't regret it. As a matter of fact, I rejoice. Because not only were you made to feel sad over your sin, you experienced a godly grief over your sin. A, uh, the, the Net Bible puts it this way, where it says that you were, you were grieved as God intended. You were sad the way God wanted you to be sad. That the phrase literally means that, that they were grieved according to God or grieved with respect to God what I would call a God-oriented sadness over sin. It's a sadness over sin that is not first and foremost concerned with the consequences of sin, but is a sadness over our sin itself as a failure to honor and trust God, to treat him as he deserves. That, according to the Bible, is what's at the root of all sin. Even sin we commit against others is ultimately stems from a failure to treat God as God. Look at the way that Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. He says this concerning all mankind. He says concerning all of us, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That's what's at the root of all of our sinful actions and desires. Sometimes we want to call them bad decisions. Sometimes we want to call them momentary lapses in our judgment. Sometimes we want to say they're the fault of our upbringing. They're the fault of our environment. And 
All of those things, bad judgments, bad upbringing, bad influence, all contributes to this yucky soup of living in a sinful world. But all sin, according to this verse, according to what Paul's teaching us here, is ultimately oriented toward God himself. It is a failure to honor him as God, not just disobeying his commands, but dishonoring and distrusting his character. Have you thought about it like that? Tim Chester put it like this. He said, sin happens when we don't trust God above everything else and when we don't desire God above everything else. That's at the root of all sin. Let's use a fairly well-known example for a few minutes. Think about King David. Many of us are familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba. And if you're not, let me just give you a review of it real quick. God made David king. He took him from the sheep fields, being a shepherd out with the flocks, and set him as the king over his chosen people of Israel that had this mission to make God known to the nations so that all nations might see how good he is. And he, he elevated David and he gave him victory over his enemies on every side so that his kingdom was great. And when he, he was basking in the goodness of God to him in this lavish palace, he's standing on the roof on a beautiful day and he looks down and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. And in the midst of all God's goodness to him, he says, I want that. And he sends his servants to go get her and bring her to him so that he can sleep with her, even though he knows that she's the wife of one of his most trusted soldiers, Uriah the Hittite. And he does this sheer, brazen act. And then a few weeks later, or however long it was later, Bathsheba comes to him and says, hey, I'm pregnant. And David goes, oh, no. But rather than confessing and repenting and making known the sinful thing that he had done, he plots with his generals to take Uriah in the next battle and put him on the front lines. And once he's in the thick of the battle, pull everybody else back. So that way Uriah will be struck down and killed. He plots to murder Uriah so that he can take Bathsheba to be his wife, even though he already had, I think, three or four by that point. In the midst of just the uckiness and the grossness of this, Nathan the prophet comes and confronts David on his sin. And the remarkable thing about the way that David or that, that Nathan confronts David is he doesn't first and foremost say, here's how you sinned against Bathsheba. Here's how you sinned against Uriah. He says, here's how you sinned against God. And David is crushed by this. He experiences this true godly grief. And in response to this, he pens one of the most memorable psalms, Psalm 51. Here's how he starts it out. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. Hold on, David. Didn't you sin against Bathsheba by using all of your power as king to abuse her and use her to satisfy your lust? Didn't you sin against Uriah by plotting to have him killed? Yes. But even more, David realized that at the root of that, 
the root of the ways he had sinned against them, he was ultimately sinning against God. He was distrusting all that God had done for him. He basically demonstrated he had no regard in that moment for the goodness that God had shown. He was neither desiring God above all else nor trusting God above all else. Ultimately, this was a problem between him and God before it was a problem between him and anybody else. And if you don't believe that, if you hear that and say, yeah, yeah, whatever, it's because you, you do not yet understand just how central God is in all of the circumstances of your life. Psalm 139 tells us that there is nowhere that we can go to flee from the presence of God. Wherever you go, even if no one else is there, God is there. Acts 17 tells us that God himself is the one who gives all men life and breath and everything else. Everything and every relationship in your life ultimately is given to you by God. And so when you misuse and abuse what God has given to you, he takes it personally. It is a violation against him before is a violation against anybody else. Do you believe that? Let that sit and wrestle. Like, honestly, I was thinking about that this week. One of the things that we do in our family, we do try to have a healthy habit of apologizing and asking for forgiveness. When we're mean to each other, when we're inconsiderate, when I jump into discipline before I fully understand what was going on with my kids, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. And the thing that I was convicted about was how horizontal my apologies and confessions are. Jen, here's how I wronged you, my wife. Kids, here's what I did. Please forgive me. And I was stopped in my track by this again this week. Do I realize, first and foremost, I need to go to my creator who puts my wife in my life, who gave me the kids that I have, and talk with him first about the way that I wronged him by wronging them. You see, when we do this, when we don't try to belittle or justify our sinfulness, but we truly wrestle with the ultimate Godward orientation of our sin, then like David, the result of a Godward perspective on sin is God-focused sorrow over sin. It's the sadness, not just that I did wrong or I have to suffer the consequences, but that I failed to show God the devotion and honor and allegiance that he deserves. That's godly grief. That is grief over sin that leads to repentance. That's godly grief in contrast to worldly grief, which Paul says leads not to repentance, but it just produces death. So if one leads to repentance and salvation and something we won't regret, and the other leads to death, it sounds like it's pretty important to figure out the difference between those two, right? Both are grief. Get that. Both godly grief and worldly grief feel like grief, feel like sorrow, feel like pain and sorrow and regret over sin. But worldly grief is chiefly concerned not with offending God by our sin, but with consequences, with the inconvenience of having to deal with people confronting you, the embarrassment of someone pointing out what you've done. The regret over, man, because I made that stupid decision, I lost out on this opportunity, or this relationship is broken. 
Worldly grief shows itself especially in the desire to point fingers when confronted on sin, to somehow shift the blame or share the blame just so that way the spotlight isn't just on you and your sinfulness because you still fundamentally think that this is about you and not about you and God. Worldly grief can still motivate us to change, but it will only be superficial change. It will be external change that's motivated by how do I avoid the embarrassment and shame of being confronted on my sin in the future? Not with the goal of actually repenting and turning from sin. Worldly grief leads you to change by becoming more devious, better at hiding your sin so you won't be found out. It leads you to change by becoming less open and honest. You, you resist having others speak into your life be out of the fear of being confronted on your sin again. Worldly grief may lead you to change by being less combative in arguments, more compliant, but not because you actually want to change and repent, but because you just want to get it over with quicker, right? You ever dealt with that? Yes, dear. Yes, you're right. I was wrong. Can I go back to what I was doing now? Do you get Paul's point here? Unless we experience true, godly, God-focused, God-oriented grief over our sin, there will still be grief. There's no getting around that. Sin causes sorrow, but it won't do us any good. You may change your habits, you may change your behaviors, but Paul's point is you're just picking a different way to die. Because worldly grief produces death. This matters tremendously. So church, let me ask you this. Have you experienced godly, God-oriented grief over your sin? Not just worldly grief over the consequences, but grief over your sin that's focused on God and how you have been disloyal and distrusting to him. Can you tell the difference? Can you tell the difference? I was thinking back this week to one of the first times where I felt like I could tell the difference between being sorry over the consequences, the effects of my sin, the guilt of my sin versus having a true Godward-oriented sorrow. I was 19 years old and my first girlfriend had just broken up with me. And I'm driving my 1998 Toyota Corolla down the 118 freeway just bawling my eyes out. And like, it's embarrassing even to say that right now because there's that part of it where you just go, oh my gosh, like, what? I was sitting there going, okay, I'm really sad about this, but why am I so devastated? Why do I feel like everything is crumbling down around me? And, and it, I, re I realized in that moment, I grew up, uh, some of you guys know, I grew up in the church. I came to faith pretty early on in the church that I was a part of growing up. I remember many times hearing adults give advice to those of us as te teenagers when it came to dating of like, make sure that your dating relationship doesn't take the place of your relationship with God. And I remember going, yeah, yeah, sure, totally. I'd never do that. I don't even know what that means, but yeah, totally. I'll never do that. And that's what struck me that night. I'm driving home in my car and I'm going, that's exactly what I've done. Like I've sought for all of my self-worth and significance and to, to, for what I could get, the emotional highs that I could get out of this relationship. And now that it's over, I finally am able to see it for what I was, what it, what it was. 
I thought that I was sorry that the relationship ended. But what was truly causing me sorrow was I was finally able to see what an idol I had made out of it. And I was honestly shocked by it. That's what that means. To put someone or something else in place of God. I remember sitting there going, oh my gosh, I get what David meant now. In the midst of all of that grossness and evil that went on with him and Bathsheba and Uriah, why he could look at that and say, God, ultimately this was between me and you. I thought this was about me and my girlfriend, but Lord, this is about me and you. Forgive me. I didn't even realize I'd done this. And that godly, God-oriented grief that wasn't about this relationship ending was about how I had basically like just sidetracked my relationship with God for it. Man, that led me to a period of repentance and growth like I'd never experienced before in my walk with the Lord. And all of that was the gracious gift of God, even the the ability to realize the God-centeredness of my sin and to grieve in a God-centered way over it was a gift from God. Have you experienced something like that? Can you tell the difference? Even now, if you're sitting here going, man, I'm feeling convicted about sin, are you wrestling with the consequences of it? Or do you see it as something between you and your maker? Does it drive you to him? That's what godly grief does. God-oriented grief calls us to go to God, not go hide, not go work harder, but go to him in confession and in dependence on him to change us. Now, please, don't, under, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that God will only forgive us if we grieve over our sin in the right way. As if being sorry the right way is some secret code that gets off our back or something that we have to do to earn God's forgiveness. Listen carefully here. It, it is not that God only forgives those who grieve the right way. Rather, What this means is that it's only those who have their eyes open to see that their sin is ultimately a situation between them and God. Only the people who are able to have a God-oriented vision of their sin will come to him for forgiveness. See the difference? It's not you grieve the right way so God will forgive you. It's that it's only those who are able to see the God-orientedness of their sin that will take the time to come to him and seek forgiveness, and seek grace to change. And when you come to God, when you come to him in that moment, what you find is that the very same God whom you've sinned against is the God who Paul says in Romans 5, demonstrated his love for you in that while you were still sinning against him, Christ died for you. Amen? When you come to God in godly grief over your sin, what you find is Jesus, who though he knew no sin, was made sin for you to take that on himself, that through his death and resurrection on the cross, you might be forgiven and made new. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that you might become the righteousness of God through him. When you come to God in godly grief over your sin, you find that the Holy Spirit was the one who was already at work in your heart to bring you to that point of grief. Not to leave you there, not to let you wallow in guilt and sadness, but so that godly grief that he brought you to, he might now walk with you on the path of repentance, 
on the path of being transformed into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. That's what he does. That's what godly grief over sin does. It leads to true change, true repentance, and in the end, true joy. That as odd as it seems on the front end, grief turns out to be the pathway to true joy after all. Are you experiencing this? Church, we must grapple with the ultimate Godward orientation of our sin so that we can grieve over our sin and repent. And I say our sin on purpose. You see, everything in this chapter is not just how we deal with sin in our personal lives. But this is the way that we deal with sin together as a church family. I mean, think about this for a second. How did the Corinthians experience this godly grief? It was because Paul sent them a letter, lovingly, harshly confronting them on their sin. That's how they were brought to godly grief that leads to repentance. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced having a brother or sister in Christ come and confront you over sin in your life? Have you been the one to come and seek to lovingly but bluntly confront someone else over their sin? Wasn't it fun? (laughs) No, it's hard. It is hard to receive loving confrontation well. I would say it's even harder to give it well. But hear me here, guys. Confrontation over sin is one of the most important, most precious, and I would even say most normal ways that we need to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We all have sin that we're blind to. We don't even realize we're doing. We all have sin in our life that we are numb to, that we have become desensitized to, that we have so rationalized in our head we don't even see it as wrong anymore. None of us has the whole picture. Understand that. This is why we need each other. None of us has the whole picture either on who God is and what he's about or on what's going on in any of our hearts. We need each other to uncover the blindness to show us the sin that we don't want to see, we don't want to have uncovered. Confrontation over sin isn't just for big sins. It's not just for that. And sometimes that's the problem, honestly. We wait until the situation has gotten so bad that it erupts like a volcano. Or the person is so knee-deep sucked into it, their whole life revolves around their sin, that they don't want to give it up anymore. It's much more like the guy who waits so long to go to the doctor for that growth that he has until he finds out he's got weeks to live. When really what it ought to be is that first thing of going, hey, something doesn't seem right here. Or someone coming to them and saying, hey, something doesn't seem right here. Help me see. Help me see what's going on in my heart. It's not just an in case of an emergency thing that we hope we'll never have to use. Loving, humble confrontation over sin is something that we need to cultivate as a church because it is essential to our growth together in Christ. But there is risk involved. If you've experienced this before, you know confrontations are those watershed moments in a relationship. The relationship won't be the same afterward. 
you hope for the better. But you pretty much give up that control when you go in love to confront someone. I hope they'll take this the right way, but I don't know. That's why Paul was in so much anxiety. That's why he couldn't wait for Titus to come back. He's going, I'm going to go look for him because I can't. You ever been there where you, you say something and you think someone took it the wrong way and you don't see him for a while? It's like, did they take it the wrong way? I don't know. I wish I could just find out. Can we just hunker down? Some of us just flee in those situations. Some of us say, no, no, everybody just sit down. We can't leave the room until we figure it out. We all deal in different ways with that risk. Have I just given up this relationship by trying to bring repentance? That's what Paul was dealing with. Did I just lose this whole church that I planted? These people that I love and long for? Did I just lose them by confronting them? But ultimately, he was more concerned with their relationship with Jesus than their relationship with him. So it was worth the risk. But don't think for a second he went at it flippantly. Don't think for a second he came in self-righteously and pompous and superior. How dare you little peons do this wrong? No, he was grieved, not just over his sin, but over their sin. That's what godly grief does. When we experience godly grief over our sin, it leads us to go to God in confession and dependence for grace to change. When we experience godly grief over someone else's sin, it leads us to go to them and seek to show them that so that they in the same way might experience that godly grief and repent. But it is messy. It will create more work for us, just as it did for Paul with the Corinthians. But that's what godly grief does. When it's our sin, we go to God with it. When it's sin we see in someone else's life, we go to them in love so that they might go to God. Are we willing to grow in this together as a church? Are you right now experiencing godly grief over the remaining sin in your life? Do you recognize that your sin is ultimately between you and God before it's between anybody else? Are you going to him in regular confession and dependence, ongoing dependence on him for grace? Is there confrontation in your life that you're avoiding? Either someone that you know you need to go to them and confront them on their sin. Maybe it's the other way. Maybe someone's been trying to talk with you about something in your life, but you just haven't even been open to having the conversation. Understand the love that that person is seeking to show to you. Understand the danger of you continuing to stiff on that. Welcome it. I say to you, if you see sin in my life, now it's just a preferential difference. But truly, you see an area where I am blind to sin in my life. Every single person here, I am giving you a hunting license. Come to me. Come in love. Remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, everybody's got planks in their eyes, everybody got specks in their eyes. We got to deal with the plank in our eyes so we can help each other with the specks in our eyes. And we all got them. But are we willing to welcome that and grow in that together as a church? confrontation, grief over sin, confession and repentance are not detours. They're not emergency scenarios in the Christian life. They are the Christian life. On this side of new creation, confrontation, confession, grief over sin, repentance are the day-to-day tools and tasks of how we grow toward maturity in Christ together. Are we willing to grow that way this year, Cornerstone? I pray that we are. I'm going to invite the band back up. We're going to sing one more song together, but would you pray with me as we do?
Heavenly Father, our creator, our maker, the giver of everything we have, the sustainer of every breath that we breathe. Lord, you are a part of every interaction, every circumstance in our lives. Often because we're so driven by our senses, we're not aware of you. We don't think about it. I think every single one of us cringed at that thought that in, our, in the moments that we're so glad nobody else saw the fact that you saw that grieves us, Lord. Not just in shame and embarrassment, but Lord Jesus, would you give us truly that Holy Spirit-enabled, Godward, God-oriented grief over sin that we might run to you for grace in our time of need. I pray next week as we turn to look at what this process of repentance looks like in our lives. Would you, over this next week, not let this message go in one ear and out the other? Would you truly help us? Would you not let us off the hook? Would you allow us to sit and settle, even though it's unpleasant and uncomfortable, in the Godward orientation of our sin that we might experience Godward grief and cling to you for change? We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus.